Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. This week, we present an interview with Richard Oman, former senior curator at the Church Museum of History and Art, now known as the Church History Museum. Uh, Richard Oman is the first in what will be a series of interviews that we hope to do over the coming weeks and months with people involved in the Church History Museum and in curating and in um, patronizing arts today in the church directly. Uh, this interview that we did with Richard Oman is, uh, represents a shift in what we're doing in Mormon visual culture. Uh, for those of you who have been listening for a long time, over the past several months, we've been focusing on the anniversary of the uh, talk Gospel Vision of the Arts by Spencer W. Kimball, originally given in 1967, and its celebration of the 50th anniversary in 2017. But as we move to 2018, we uh, want to talk a little bit more expansively and directly about the culture of art as it is uh, as it is distributed and uh, patronized by the church itself. And it's it's hard to find somebody who'd be better than Richard Oman, who uh, was involved at the beginning of the foundation of the church history museum, and was the uh, the, the what is the word I'm looking for? The founder of the International Church Art Competition. He then was directly involved in the first publication of international images and articles that were done in church magazines, and to today has been involved as, as uh, one of the few people involved in the Church Art Evaluation Committee for Temple Art. In this interview, we talk about Richard Oman's education. He went to BYU for his undergrad, the University of Washington for his graduate degree. He then went to the Seattle Art Museum. He has a broad education in both Western tradition of art and also in indigenous cultures and their art. That perspective he brought to the Church Museum, which, as we learn in this interview, has one of the largest and most important collections of indigenous art in uh, in the Western United States, and arguably in the United States. Uh, it was an eye-opening interview, and one where there was a lot of wisdom and experience that came across from uh, Richard Oman's years, which he is he uh, he shares brilliantly with us. So I hope you enjoy this interview. Uh, it was uh, it, it was mind expanding, and if it's an indication of future interviews that we do with Omen and others who are involved in the church, uh, it, it, it's going to be consequential. I hope in the way that some of us look at the church's collections and role. We are very happy to have uh, Richard Omen here. Thank you so much for for coming, Richard. Good to be here. So as I alluded to in my introduction, um, it's. It, 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 Richard Oman is someone who has been at the center of so many key moments in in the past 30, 40 years. I don't want to age you too much of the uh, uh, of decisions that have been made in the church when it comes to patronage, to building, to 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 the museum uh, in particular. And I guess you'd say if we were lis- listening to Hamilton, he's been in the room where it happens for a very long time. And before I get to those rooms that you've been in, I'd like to know where you started. Where are you from originally? Well, actually, I was born in Salt Lake, uh-huh. lived in and, uh, a 
cattle ranch down by Price uh, when I was uh, in early grade school. Then we moved to the Pacific Northwest, and I grew up in a little farming town uh, called Moses Lake. I, uh, I emphasize that that part of Washington is a desert, seven inches of rainfall a year. Oh, so now what you think of when you think of the Pacific Northwest no, no, no. and all the rain coming down. Uh, unlimited irrigation water from the Columbia River coming out of Grand Coulee Dam. Hmm. Basically, if you've been to Burley, Idaho, you've been to Moses Lake. Oh, really? Why did your parents move there? Why did you move there? Uh, well, my father uh, had a cousin who was in the insurance business with State Farm, and he needed somebody to run the Moses Lake uh, office, and so my dad went up and became a successful insurance person. So he's an insurance person, but you describe it as kind of growing up in farm ranch territory. Were you growing up with animals and That's right. taking care of them? Well, mostly it was uh, irrigated agriculture. Uh, all of our ward were farmers. Okay. And uh, so I grew up... Uh, uh, changing irrigation water and moving sprinkler lines and bucking hay and driving trucks in beet harvest and potato harvest. And, uh, and it influenced me in this way. The people in our ward were, as I mentioned, mostly farmers, but many of them were former school teachers. Many of them had college degrees. These were huh. very, very uh, successful farmers, um, and they were not dumb. And so when I would later on in my career put together exhibitions and write labels, or I would write articles for the Enzyme or for BYU studies, I often had the people in the Moses Lake Fourth Ward in my mind as an audience. Hmm. And what it did is it made me um, somewhat of a populist because I, I've eschewed jargon in my writing because I want to actually communicate. Besides, I think in much of art history, uh, writing using jargon, it often masks vacuousness. Yeah. And I wanted to be clear. And I wanted to actually touch people's hearts and minds. And I felt that there was this incredibly rich artistic tradition that existed and that was potential that could uh, be a key element in uh, building the kingdom of God. Hmm. That we can preach to the eyes as well as the ears. Now, we don't think of the agricultural district as being one that's generally rich in art. Not for subject. I'm not talking about subject. I'm talking about where you grew up. Did you grow yeah. up around art? Did your family have it? Not much, although my mother was a fair to middling painter. Really? What kind of things did she paint? Where um, did she pick that up? She, uh, she took some classes down here in Utah. I remember uh, on a, a summer trip one time, we stayed for two or three months. My grandparents live here in Salt Lake, and my mother took... Uh, classes from the faucets oh so like lynn faucet yeah. and and uh the yeah who were very very and, accomplished and, and she uh she painted in uh kind of a loose uh impressionist style hmm. and uh she also liked lots of different kinds of crafts the faucets were kind of from the ab wright mabel fraser world weren't yeah they? and they had some roots in price 
Hmm. And they, my folks had lived in Price, and so there was a natural affinity there. So at what point did you start having an interest in art? Was it your mother, or did it come later? What, what do you remember as being kind of the, 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 the ground zero for, for Richard Oman saying, this is, this is, this, there's something in this that I want to explore for the rest of my life, or at I, least for now? I remember of going down to the town library, and um, one day, I, I can't remember how old I was, maybe nine, I, I found this great big huge book of medieval architecture. Hmm. And I saw for the first time images of Gothic cathedrals, and it absolutely blew my mind. That's Moses Lake was a little town that basically didn't exist before 1950 when they brought in irrigation and a big Air Force base. And I had never really been immersed in any kind of historical architecture. And you're, you're living at a time, you're, 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 it would be fair to say you're a baby boomer, right? Yeah. And so you grew up in a time when... I was born. You were you were born at a time when architecture was meant to be functional and That's and, right. uh, and and so you're you're not only growing up in the Western United States but Protestant Western Protestant United States you couldn't find anything more opposite than that than That's right. medieval Catholic cathedral making and spaces and I thought I had no idea <laughs> such aesthetic beauty could exist with buildings huh and. Um, and the grandeur and scale. And it played a role in my interest in moving into history. And then um, I served a mission in Quebec. And in Quebec, I found that I, I couldn't walk by a Catholic church without walking inside. Yeah. And, and uh, it was delightful. I have a friend who often describes himself as being... Uh, doctrinally Mormon, but aesthetically Catholic. I I can appreciate that. Yeah, and I I can appreciate that too. But that's it's a it, it's what is it? What is it that we that you love, and what is it that we love about? I've got my own answers, but what is it that, that draws you to those spaces? It it is first of all from a historian's standpoint. When I look at these buildings, they represent history, and I look at churches. And as I travel around the world, it is not simply churches, it's, it's, uh, it's mosques, it's uh, Buddhist temples, etc. If you want to see the concentration of the greatest expressions aesthetically of a civilization over time, go to their religious houses of worship. Hmm. That's where it's concentrated. Hmm. Now, you can see other things. You can see some wonderful palaces, but palaces kind of come and palaces kind of go. And political uh, leadership comes and it, political leadership grows, goes. But the, the constant tends to be religious. Yeah, and I, and I want to get to how that is expressed or not expressed in, in, uh, in Mormon culture and sacred spaces, too. But before we do, let's talk a little bit about your education. Well, I... I went to uh, a little community college in Moses Lake before my mission. Then I went to BYU. I studied history there and, um, and also political science and a fair amount of economics and philosophy and who, some anthropology. Who were the teachers that, or the professors that you look back at that era and say these were the people that, 
that dominated my 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 thinking or what was going on at the time, if you can. One of them was Kent Nielsen, okay. who taught history of science, and that that merged philosophy and history. Hmm. Um, pretty pretty open and expansive person. Yeah. He was also quite aesthetic. I mean, he, he sang in local community choirs, uh, the best that Utah Valley had to offer. Mm-hmm. Um, Delamar Jensen, I had in Renaissance history. Hmm. Um, Doug Tobler in British history. Uh, Richard Anderson in uh, Roman history. And uh, as you can tell, most of my interest tended to be non-American. George Addy in Latin American history. Hmm. So I was interested in intellectual history, and I was interested basically in non-American history. And partially this was coming from growing up in a little isolated farming town of 10,000 people and discovering the scale of the world. Okay, and so, I wanted to find out about that place out there. So this this begs a question then, because I can almost hear um, the practical small agricultural town, as educated as it may be, pulling on your 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 uh, instincts, saying, "Do something practical, <laughs> right?" Of here, you're interested in history, you're interested in culture, but. W- Maybe you didn't even feel that pressure. Did you feel a pressure to find something, to find a practical expression of how you're going to apply it? Or, or were you just so enthralled by the exploration that you kept going? I'll tell you two things that influenced me. Um, my mother and my grandmother introduced me to classical music. And for some people, um, rock music was their form of adolescent rebellion. <laughs> Yeah. For me, it was classical music rebelling against my father's Lawrence Welk and uh, Perry Como. Okay, <laughs> you and weren't a, you weren't a big Doris Day fan. No, and, no. And <laughs> I remember my grandmother introduced me to Wagner one summer when I was twelve. That's meat. And I went through all of the operas of the Ring and followed the libretto because I was fascinated with these great stories, and then the light motifs that would come in. So when Siegfried shows up, there's his little his little light motif tone. Uh, uh, did tune. you have like the guided records, or did you just have a big libretto with you while you were looking at it? Well, what were you doing? My grandmother taking a class on this. She was always taking classes at yeah. the university, <clears throat> and I was staying with her for the summer here in Salt Lake. She and my grandfather, and she had the libretto, hmm. and so I followed that and went through it. So that played an influence. The other thing is my father liked books. He uh, as a he had a little bookstore in Moses Lake, kind of on the side. Hmm. It was in our home uh, of church books. But he would also get other books and put in this bookstore. And he liked to collect books. And one of my a couple of my nieces one time counted up the books in my father's library. And it was eight and a half thousand volumes. Wow. And my father always told me there were three or four things that were worth putting your money into. One was your church offerings, uh, tithing, fast offering. Uh, another was uh, tools. Mm. 
A third was real estate, land, and a fourth was books. Everything else, in his opinion, was a waste of money. That's so, you know, it reminds me, if you don't mind me telling a very brief story, Jerry Ackerman, uh, who was one of my, my mentors for my thesis, my, my doctoral thesis was, uh, he was an expert on Jerome and Bouguereau and French, the French Academy in the 19th century. And he was sent as part of a diplomatic effort to, to teach in Leningrad for, for two semesters. And before that, he'd been stationed in Germany. And he would go out occasionally with these professors to recruit new graduate students. And he said, when you went out in Germany after the war, people had nothing, just nothing. And you'd go to these poor homes that were in apartment blocks. He said, then I went to, he went to Russia and he said, people still had nothing in terms of material goods except for books. And he remembers going to this home with a, uh, with a, an August professor at the University of Stalingrad, St. Peter, or Leningrad, St. Petersburg. And, and uh, they left the home and Jerry said, I thought it went really well. But then the, uh, the professor turned to him and said, oh, those, those people were just peasants. They had, they had less than 500 books in their home. But it, it struck him that people who had books were rich in that society. And, um, and, and that was the basis of whether or not you were, you were an educated individual, was owning, owning and having books. I can imagine you couldn't read 8,000 books growing up in that household, but you probably read and thumbed through a lot and just being around the expanse of ideas that were represented and seeing their spines. By the time I was in the eighth grade, I was reading and completing on average one and a half books a day. Wow. And I still draw on that information. Most of the books were history. Hmm. Um, So I think that played a significant role. And then when I was at BYU... I discovered I was short of humanities credits, strangely enough. I, I had been in uh, the a cappella choir, the opera, and the oratorial choir. I love classical music and choral music. And my favorite is probably oratorials where you bring together the choral and the symphonic. Hmm. And I remember the year I was in oratorio under Kurt Feinsinger, we did Brahms' Requiem, we did Verdi's Requiem, we did Vo- Mozart's Requiem, we did Kodai's Te Deum, we did um, Kundig's um, uh, Song of Nephi, and we did Robertson's Oratorio from the Book of Mormon, all in wow. one year. Wow. And uh, that was... And that's, that's all over the, the classical spectrum from the, yeah. from the 17th century up until the 20th century, and you've got... You've got Mormon to, uh, to, uh, to, to every other kind of, of work that's going on. I mean, you're doing, that's, that's a remarkable breadth. It, it, it tell, I was talking with a, um, uh, and this will go into part of the discussion we're talking about um, when we get to, to, as we get to church art, but I was talking to a professor at BYU, a professor of music who just retired, and she said, when she was growing up in the church, it was very common to have classical works performed at every meeting of some kind. And she said, I'm afraid that the Mormon brain is shrinking in some mm. way. And, and I kind of want, do you feel like that is true in the difference between you growing to school and versus now? Or do you think that you were just an outlier? I don't know. That's a good question. 
Well, let's get back to I'll that. T- I'll tell you what it did for me, though, in terms of my worldview. By by dropping Kundig and Leroy Robertson into the mix, yeah, it helped me understand that the Mormon cultural tradition is part of a greater world tradition. Not isolated, not, not independent isolated, from it, and I think integrated into if, it. If there is a critique I would have of much of what passes for Mormon studies is that it is too insular and doesn't put us in the context of a world-wide uh, uh, historical matrix. Interesting. And which is one of the reasons I really enjoy reading people like Dick Bushman, because he puts it into this broader context. And, uh, and as an American historian first, yeah, he probably it's it's natural for him to do that. But if people start off the other way around, yeah, that's interesting. I'm going to make a leap here for a moment. I'm going to make a leap in the timeline. You graduate from BYU, and you eventually are part of the the Church Museum. Oh, let me let me called. add one you want more add little it? piece. Yeah, okay, in go ahead. From BYU, I had, as I mentioned, I'd taken an art history class to fill a humanities requirement, and this boggled my mind. I thought, you mean you can study history by looking at these Gothic cathedrals? <laughs> you can look at history. You can study history by by looking at Renaissance art. Yeah, you can. And my my professor for that was Cohen Matthews, who had done a uh, a sabbatical at the University of Washington and studied art history, although he was a painter. Um, and he had talked about Northwest Coast Indian art. And, and so when I went to the University of Washington, I signed up. That's for first, your graduate degree. Yeah. I signed up for Northwest Coast Indian art. And there were several classes on this subject. And uh, that changed my life. How? Because what I realized is that art might not be a bronze sculpture or an oil painting with a gold frame. It might be a, a spoon carved out of mountain goat horn. It might be a large cedar tree that had been turned into a totem pole. And I started learning the aesthetics within the culture, particularly the Haida, uh, upon the Queen Charlotte. And, um, and my professor, uh, Bill Holm, had kind of broken the code of Northwest Coast Indian art. And what I learned from that is that there was a structure behind the art that was every bit as sophisticated and complicated as a Bach fugue. Yeah. And what I learned from that is that... As you look at different cultures, you have to climb inside and understand the aesthetic structure of their artistic tradition. And when you do, it comes alive. And the other thing I learned is that you have to adjust what you look for when you go to different cultures. Let me give you an example of something close at hand. Sure. If you go down to the Hopis and you're looking for paintings or bronze sculpture, they don't have any art. Right. But if you look at their pottery, or maybe their kachinas, but especially their pottery, ah, this is the mother load. If you go to the Navajos, 
and you say, well, I'm in the Southwest. I know what Indian art is. It's pottery. You look at the Navajos, with the exception of a LDS potter named uh, Lucy McKelvey in Bloomfield, New Mexico, they don't have much in the way of pottery. But check out their weaving. It's incredible stuff. Hmm. And, and so it, it tipped me off that as we look around the world, it is crucial to see what a culture focuses on as their major area of aesthetic expression and communication of ideas. So this goes directly to something that I know that we had talked about a few weeks ago, and I, I really wanted it to be a, a central part of this discussion, which is when you you were there in the early days of the Church Museum of History and Art, as it was called then, and now it's been changed recently to the Church Museum of History, but you were there for the beginning of the, or the Church History Museum, sorry. You were there for the... Uh, the 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 beginning of the international church competition. When was the first international church competition? Oh, I should have done my homework before I walked in the door. Was it eighty nine? Yeah, that's about right. And the museum was I think was founded is eighty three. Yeah, and so it's it's only six years in. That's right. Did did this notion? I mean, at this time you you talked about the idea of um um of of the church expanding a great deal in the 20th century and the internationalization of the church. And the, it seems like that is a watershed moment, the founding of a church international art competition. What, what, what did you want that competition to be? What was the genesis of that competition? Well, first of all, I actually liked the art out there. Yeah, I had I had studied. <laughs> why, do, why do you say it that way? Though? <laughs> I I had I had studied Melanesian art, okay, Polynesian art, Asian art, um, Latin American uh, colonial art, uh, modern Mexican muralists. And this is a part of your, your education for your graduate degree. Yeah. Is you're looking at a indigenous lot of African indigenous cultures and their output, which we would call art, but is simultaneously ritual and useful objects and also art. I mean, it play, it's a whole host of things, but it's each yeah. culture's... One thing it did, it, it did a couple of things for me. First of all, it, it was a continuation of this uh, coming from the little farming town saying, wow, the world is big, what's out there? The other thing is that it, and also medieval and Byzantine. Uh, now, I did the whole history of Western art too, but these are the areas that I really found uh, my passion got into. And they're all kind of tribal in a way. Even, and, and what I mean by that is that this was art that was deeply embedded in the culture. It functioned. It was functional art. It was part of the sacral ritual That's right. element of the culture. So it had they jobs, were using it. Yeah, it had jobs to do and it did them. And um, and coming from a, a history background, I was I found that compared to my other fellow graduate students, most of them had come from studio art, and it was line, form, color, and texture. And we study 
the history of world art to look at more line form, color, and texture, maybe to get a few ideas for new forms of line form, color, color and texture. But I was coming at it from the standpoint of how does it express a people? What does it tell you about a civilization? What does it tell you about their value system, their belief structure, their social structure, etc.? And I found that the tribal art really got into that. Hmm. And then I looked at the demographics and I looked at the church and I thought, you know, the, the internationalization of the church is the epic story of the church of the late 20th and the 21st century. Just like crossing the ocean and crossing the plains and settling little villages in the Intermountain West was our 19th century uh, great heroic period. And, and I thought, how are we documenting this? And I looked at what we were doing in terms of collecting, and most of our collecting was on the Wasatch Front. I can imagine this idea. I mean, the, the church office building had only recently been building. Two giant globes are, are, are uh, on, in, in relief on the front of the building. It must have been fairly new at about that time. It was. You had a museum that was full of work that was done by... Um, pioneer artists. You had the the Dancourt Waglands, the CCA Christensen's. You had you had all of the the, the art missionaries and their early work, which represented that history that was that was transatlantic coming to the United States, the pioneer journey and the struggles of being there. And you want to bring in the next the next phase, which is this international. What did you think that would do to the collection? What were you hoping? And by the way, Eric got while we were talking. Um, I checked the date. It was 1987 was the first show. So we're in the roaring 80s. You've got this church collection of pioneer and local art subjects for the most part, probably some European as well. This must have been a huge mindset change if we're going to do an international show. Well, I, I began by looking at our pioneer tradition. And well, most Mormon historians were talking about uh, Mormonism, the American religion, I looked at the material culture and I said, wait, our painters are almost exclusively non-Americans in the early days, with the exception of Ottinger, who came from Philadelphia. The rest were British and Scandinavians. Yeah. And therefore, if we want to understand our artistic tradition, we really need to look at the history of British and Scandinavian art because that's where we're springing from. That was the first point. And, and then I, uh, I started looking at the collection and I said, you know, we have got some rather interesting collections that are actually quite international. For instance, we have a huge Polynesian collection. And where did those come from? Well, these have been brought back by early missionaries and con and continuing missionaries. The Polynesians like to give gifts to people that they hold in deep respect. So is this the kind of thing that people would donate to the museum, or was it given to general authorities who were visiting? It was or often given to church leaders, but often, too, from missionaries. Huh. And eventually... The families would say, you know, we've got this stuff in the attic. and We don't know what to do with it. They'd bring it down. But the net result was that we had a large collection. And we had some stuff that was really rather unique. Have we ever had a Polynesian art culture expert exhibit? exhibit no. Or That's, that's kind of no. mind-blowing. And yet, 
And yet we have one of the great collections in America on that subject. That is insane. The Bishop's Museum in Honolulu has borrowed work from the Church Museum for exhibits there. At the Polynesian Cultural Center? No, no, no. This is the Bishop's Museum in Honolulu, which is probably the single uh, largest Polynesian art collection on the planet. Hmm. And they have borrowed things from the church. Let me give you an example. But the example. Bishop's Museum, it's not a church-run no, 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 facility. No, 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 When you say bishops, it sounds like... No, no, no. It, it's, it's, but it's, uh, that just happens to be the last yeah, name yeah, of the founder. And uh, it's you say the, Bishop's Storehouse, yeah. I immediately thought it was so. No, the it's the major like, museum of Honolulu. And they borrow things from the church. And they have borrowed things. We, we have a little sculpture, for instance, of, uh, I think it's Pele, the god of the volcano or something. They borrowed that. The Smithsonian has borrowed the same thing. We have a feather kiwi cape from the Maoris. Now, these are rather rare. Oh, yeah. But the one that we have is kind of mind-bogglingly significant historically. Why is that? Because it was worn by the paramount chief of the Maoris when he signed the peace treaty with the British and the British army when they ended the Maori Wars in New Zealand. And this oh, was the, one of the greatest treasures so of the is, Maori people. So this is a people. national treasure. And he gave it. At, they, the, a lot of them became members of the church. This was then given to an early missionary down there that they absolutely adored. I can't remember his name right now. And they wanted to give him something that was significant, and they gave him this cape. And they brought it up, and it's in the church museum. If I wanted to see this, you would have to go into the storage area. And if I and if I wanted, and are there images of them that are printed? Probably in other museums no. catalog when they're borrowed. But, Maybe not. But if you look at that that <clears throat> piece, and you can look at it from two or three different ways, you can say this is a masterpiece of Maori weaving. Yes, it was, and it is. This is a significant historical item for the Maori people. Yes, it is. And then you have to ask the question, how did it end up with Mormons? And at yeah. that point, you start saying, you start understanding how integrated Mormonism became into the Maori culture. Okay. And how we responded to the Maoris and the Maoris responded to us. My brain is, 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 is about to explode with questions. It's going at a thousand miles per hour. And one of the things that this reminds me of is that here you have look let's let's draw up a comparison. You've got the Catholic Church which in the 15th and 16th centuries starts becoming a collector of Greek and Roman objects which they're putting within the Vatican complex. Right. And that and, and for a long time they'd been treated as pagan objects, but then the cardinals there becomes this kind of educated class that's collecting them and Pieces like the La Caon, the, the Paulo Belvedere, and, and, and other works start influencing artists like Michelangelo, like Raphael. And the church becomes something that is not only responsible for these objects as they relate to Catholic history, but how they relate to Greco-Roman history as well. And the Catholic church, I mean, if, even if you go there today, by comparison to other museums... It's not known for its great scholarship or its great, um, the, the, the people at the Vatican Museum or its great restoration or its great display of works, but they've at least put them on public display. And it kind of makes me wonder, something I've thought about a lot, and I'm sure that you have thought about even more, especially as you've been part of it. The Church Museum is founded in 
in, in the early 80s. You're there at, at this time when you're starting, and you were there as an expert in these cultures. You have been trained in graduate school to look at these objects, not exclusively from a Mormon perspective, but from, you've been trained to see them from their perspective as well. How did the, mu did the museum at the time have this vision of the museum becoming a multicultural museum space? No. What what was the idea at your time? And you say that pretty emphatically. It, Is it because you, did you feel like there was there were kind of different groups who wanted to take the museum in different ways, or was it we'll eventually get there? What was the conversation like? The the two major directions were the celebration of the pioneer tradition. Okay, and I can identify with that. I mean, I had pioneer ancestors that came to Utah in eighteen forty nine. Um, my latest ancestors to come to Utah came in 1860 from Sweden. They were all pioneers. Every single one of them crossed the plains in covered wagons. So I identify with that tradition and, and love it. Okay. So that was one thing that was celebrated. The other thing was kind of the great man theory of history. So what right. we're going to do is we're going to document church leaders. And we're going to see the history of the church through their decisions and expansion to other people. So the Maori would have come into it as that missionary went. That's right. And so... Uh, it wouldn't have been an exploration of Maori life. It would have been an exploration of this, ex this strong man's involvement in Maori life. Yeah, but, but it, there really wasn't even too much celebration of their connection with the Maoris. I mean, for instance, we didn't have... Uh, any exhibit on Matthew Cowley, for instance, who was kind of who was the, the great missionary, the apostle to the the the, uh, the Polynesians, but um, this this idea of the church is international in nature um, that wasn't really on the radar screen. The other thing that wasn't on the radar screen is if you're looking at the great man theory of history, yeah you're probably going to miss the story of the rank and file. And a part of the populist in me, coming from a little farming town, uh, is I identified with rank and file people. And as I would look at things like journals and diaries in the 19th century, some of our best stuff is humble rank and file folk. And President Hinckley gave an impetus to that. He would, he would tell stories about uh, the average but heroic member of the church in early times. Elder Packer mm. did the same thing. And they identified, they, they were not um, hierarchically focused. So did you feel like the atmosphere, how did you feel like the atmosphere was ripe? And were you, was it you who in 87 said, let's do this international show? Yeah. And the reason I did that is I was looking at our collections and yeah. I was looking at uh, particularly how we were collecting the present. And, uh, we would go basically, uh, uh, Payson to Bountiful. And collect? And collect. What would you collect from shows? No, well, a little bit. A little bit of shows. Uh, uh, mostly artifacts and stuff, but so, some, some art. 
And occasionally we get to Cache Valley. That would be kind of a little journey. And occasionally to St. George. That would be kind of a journey. And then on rare occasion, as far as Rexburg. And, and this was to create exhibits in the space? I mean, if I were to walk into the museum in 83 to 87, before the, the show started, these artifacts would show up in exhibits? Yeah. And, and we, were, we were putting together exhibits that uh, basically was the Mormon component of Utah art. And I thought, wait, the church is bigger than that. Hmm. We need to reach out, but we didn't have uh, support or funding for international acquisitions uh, to go out and collect them. So I thought, okay, how can we structure something so that we can build a system that does some of this collecting for us? This was very outside the box thinking. Yeah. At the time. And, um, and I thought, look, we have some institutions in place. Some, some departments in place that can help here. We have a way we can communicate to the artists around the world. How is that? Church magazines. Okay. And they're in all these different languages. So I started getting to know the editors of the Church International magazines, as well as the editors of the Ensign. And they were based in Utah for the most oh, part, yeah, right? Church all of them were based in, head, in church yeah. headquarters. And they were, they were taking, for the most part, content that was produced in English, translating it, and then adding... Much of that. And it? they would have a little bit of news from the local region. Right. Like for Latin America, for the Liahona, for instance. Right. But they were hungry for it. They were really hungry. And, and when I would uh, go over there and show them some things, they were excited about that. The Ensign was the same way. I, I would beat a path. I got to know the editors of the Ensign. I got to know their designers. I would go over to their office and say, well, what are some what are some stories you're going to be running for this next year? And they would tell me the topics and things. I say, you know, I've got a great work of art in the collection that might be useful for you. Interesting. So then are you walking it over to their photographers? Exactly. And, and, and then I would, I would get them to start putting them on the covers and the inside covers and the back covers and to start putting the, the church art collection out there so people saw it. Okay, so this is a, this is a subversive question, but um, because it's going to international languages, does this mean that most of the decision makers, the authorities in the church aren't seeing what you're doing because they're, they're reading the English editions? Uh, some of the the ensign was pretty good about not that you were doing doing a general thing too not that you were doing anything controversial necessarily here is here is one story i should tell you and i'll have to change i i won't mention the name (laughs) okay but uh, we put together uh an article and i can't remember who was it was for the ensign or for the children's friend it was on molas from Panama. These are textile panels used on the front of blouses, but it's the major art form of the country. Yeah. <clears throat> and we happened to have a lot of members of the Relief Society down there that were some of our, the finest makers of molas in the country. And we, we had developed a very nice collection. And what they do is they often tell stories on these. And we had things like handcart pioneers and first visions and the restoration of the priesthood and the Salt Lake Temple, et cetera, et cetera. All this Mormon stuff on molas. How are you getting this? Well, I got to know uh, the 
wife of the mission president down there, I found that the best source for reaching out usually was not the mission president. It was his wife. Oh, because they're more interested in these things. And besides, she was working with the Relief Society. She knew the Kuna Indians and the island of Ustopo and where the, all these, a lot of this was made. So he put together this little article showing all of this Mormon stuff, but in a very um, Panamanian, uh, Kuna Indian context. And um, there's... There's a lot of other stories I could tell you about the Kunas, their connection with Book of Mormon stuff. It's really quite fascinating, but that's, that's another story. So we put together this, <clears throat> this, um, this visual article. It got up fairly high for, to, have, to get approval, and there was, a, uh, there was a man. He was not a general authority, but he was pretty high-ranking. And he looked at it, and his comment was, we're not going to have any hippie drug art in church publications. Hmm. And the, the story was killed. Hmm. Uh, but what it told me was that those big globes you mentioned on the exterior of the church office building, we had not internalized the implications of the image. We, we were talking uh, Mormon culture, we were talking internationalization. We were training missionaries in different languages. <clears throat> and we were becoming pretty conversant sometimes in, in uh, <clears throat> verbal languages. <clears throat> but we were very naive about visual languages. That was not on the radar screen. And I thought, <clears throat> this, is, this is something we have to do. In the 19th century... We could get the story from the rank and file <clears throat> with journals and diaries. These people, the Kuni Indians, were not doing journals and diaries. Their documentation of their of their Mormonness and their Kuni Indianness and the coming together of those was an artistic expression. And it, if we wanted to document that part of our history, we had to document their art. Have we <clears throat> gotten any better in internalizing it today? The church magazines, um, international magazines, once we got them used to the idea that there was art that could be useful for them, I would say, you know, one of our prize winners is um, Lord Sampson from the Philippines, and she did this incredible... Um, textile work of art. Well, they put it on their cover, something like that. Huh. And so they were they were eager for this because they were trying to create a... Uh, and once it's in the form of a competition, <clears throat> you've endowed it with a certain authority. That's right. But but this is this this then gets me back to the question of, you do this for a show, you advertise it through your connections in the magazines. And... What did that first show submissions look like? And was it what you were expecting? Was it different? What, what were you expecting to get? What did you get? We got a lot of art from all over. Some of it was really good stuff. Are Some you paying for it to come or are they paying to send it? Oh, we would use the church distribution system okay. to transport it. 
Okay. Just like we would use the church magazines to get the message out, we would use the church distribution center. All an artist had to do is get it to the local distribution center, and then they would forward it to Salt Lake. So you're getting these packages from all over the world where the distribution centers are set up. That's right. And you're opening them up, and what are you, see what are you seeing in the first things that you're getting? We're getting a lot of uh, folk painting when it comes to around the world. And How do you use the term? What do you mean by folk painting as a term? Because well, for some people, when they hear folk painting, it is a step down the ladder from fine art. And, and, and I don't know if that's, a, I, I don't know when you say folk painting, what you mean by it. And I don't even know if I like the idea that it's a step down at all. I think that I, I'm not trying to make a judgment. I'm just saying, let, let's, let's make sure these terms that we're using, I want to hear what your definition of them okay, is. Okay, let me, let so me use it with some examples. If you look at um, folk art in Mexico, okay. one of the things they do is they use really bright colors. Okay. And in much of the world's folk art, they use very bright colors. So when you mean folk, do you mean indigenous? Indigenous. That's what you mean. Okay. And the, uh, they use bright colors because most of their world is earthen. I mean, their houses are made out of mud, right? Right. It's adobe. Um, their streets are that way, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So they are not having to make petroleum-based fibers look like sheep okay <laughs> yeah, yeah. because they got sheep they got right. they've got lots of sheep uh, what is celebratory for them is color we tend to celebrate that which we don't have which is why in a highly industrialized culture we tend to use a lot of natural colors Interesting. because we're compensating for what we don't have Interesting. what they don't have is bright color and they love it. And so when they're doing, whether it's a fiesta or whether it's a piece for the Mormon International Art Competition, boy, you bring on the color. And we tend to look at it and say, oh, it's so garish. And yeah. they would look at our, at our earthen colors and say, oh, it's so drab. It's a drab. <laughs> it, so it depends pieces, on where you're standing. How many pieces were you getting in the first show? Oh, first show, maybe 500. And wow, that's a significant number. It is. And when you were getting them, who was, did you, did you have in mind, okay, if we, so, so you've judged the spring Springville salon before, yeah. right? And, and, uh, and I have too, and I feel like they've got a pretty good system in the sense of the limitation is not a set number. It's just how many things they can fit on walls. Right. Yeah. And so here you've got 500 pieces how did you, were you just going to, and they've already been sent to you. No, no, no. You're not no. going to send them back. What, what are you going to do? What we had them do was send in images of them. Okay, so you had images. And we would select the images. We would scale it way down, and then we would bring those scaled down numbers in, and then we would jur jury those. And of those, we would probably put in about 80, 85%. Which is still a pretty... So so how many are you looking at it was in the first show on display? Oh, I don't know, 150. And it, that's a that's a good-sized number. Did you have to get fight for the space to put those in? Uh, we, or was it kind of like do it and ask for forgiveness? No, we managed, to, we managed to get the space. Here is the crunch that we learned from the first one. Okay. Uh, as I would push this up the line, 
they would say, okay, we're going to have an international art competition. Well, we all know what art is. Art is oil paintings. It's bronze sculpture. It's, you know, the the, the Today canon, we would right? say it's installations. It's yeah. photography. It's... And, and then they, they said, well, you know, we'll be real broad-minded. We'll bring in photography, too. And the, the stuff that I had studied in graduate school was mostly not permitted. Yeah. Okay? So I got a phone call from one of the translators in the, um, in the church offices and he translated uh, uh, things into Tongan. He was Tongan himself. And this was for the, the Tongan Church Magazine. And it had been billed as a churchwide international fine art competition. And he said, I'm having trouble with translating fine art. What is fine art? Well... I said, you know, painting and sculpture and that sort of... But we can also we, do photography. Yeah, we go back to the liberal arts idea that comes from there the we go. time of Plato. And we, got, we go. you bring it all through Western culture and you bring... That's it. <laughs> Art and, to... <laughs> and then he asked a couple of key questions. He said, does it include fine mat weaving? Because in Tongan culture, that's one of the high points. Right. And they're meticulously made. And they only give really, really fine mats to as gifts to you know if you were you know the prime minister of new zealand and was visiting tonga you might get a fine map and there there was a recent comparison that was done by neil mcgregor the former director of the british museum in his history of the world in 100 objects where he talks about the mats and he talks about feather feather objects and he says you know we tend to think in the west in terms of fine art and having a court painter and all of the infrastructure that has to exist for somebody to create one of those. He said in order to create one cow, one hat that would have been created for a Hawaiian um, uh, king, it would have taken a group all the way from the bird gatherers to the fine artisans of about 300 people. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about one that has an equivalent European-sized culture dedicated to the skill and craft of making artistic objects that just don't take the form that we're doing. And I assume that if you were in Tonga which had its own king and its own empire, that you would have people making mats exclusively who developed a hierarchy and they've got... They, they they've got, got very good at they've it. Got, they've got their people who are doing it on the same... But the it's same also s- spread broadly. Yeah. And, and they had a lot of art schools down there. The art schools are called families. <laughs> yeah. And you have grandma who may be a really good mat maker and she would teach you how to do this. And, and you can see what that does socially. What it does is it brings together a family. Instead of art separating generations, it bonds generations together. Now, it seems to me there's a good gospel principle there. But coming back to the art competition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I get this call from this translator. And he says, fine art, what is this? Yeah. And then we ask about, well, does it include mats? Because he's trying in- to describe it to people who want to submit works. Yeah. Right? Does it include tapa cloth? No, it didn't include tablet. Does it include basketry? And then he said something interesting. He said, oh, I guess we're not invited to this, are we? And this is after you'd put announcements out. Oh, yes. So did you and immediately I have an aha sure, moment of, oh, no? Well, 
No, I knew exactly where he's coming from. It's yeah. basically uh, some of the argument that I've been trying to use all along. But now I had somebody else from the country reinforcing my argument. So you in the in the process of putting out the the language for inviting people, but I got at some point, At some point, you got vetoed. That's right. And somebody said, "No, we got to call it in our language fine arts." And we were going to make a list of what is acceptable. Interesting. And, and I said, but it's going to leave these people out. Well, now what I had is a footnote of a member of the church who said, yes, we are feeling left out. And you and, could say, we disenfranchised all of these that's people. That's right. And I said, you start looking at the demographics of the church. You start looking at where the church is growing rapidly. It's not growing in places like Sweden and Denmark and Great Britain, where my ancestors are from, right. it's growing in places. I mean, this the single country with the highest percentage of Latter-day Saints is Tonga, where this translator just said, we're not invited. Yeah. And I say, you start looking at the, the numbers of members of the church in, say, Peru, and contrast that to the numbers of members of the church in Denmark. Yeah. Do we really want to narrow our definition that tightly? Did this mean that with the first competition and the kinds of things you were asking for, that you had the people who were indigenous um, or who were locals who were members of the church were kind of warping their art in order to fit the definition? They started to do things on canvases that they normally wouldn't do or sculptures to submit to that first show in no. order to try and make it? no. What they what happened is those that worked on canvases sent, and those who didn't just didn't just didn't. And what happened is we didn't have as nearly as many as I hoped we would. So the next competition we opened it up. So was it three? Right now it's every three or every yeah. every four years or every three years. I think every three years. Every three years. So was it? So you did the next one three years later. I think that's what we did. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So and, you did the next one three years later. It would have been nineteen ninety. <clears throat> And you, but, it, but now we, we, we spread the net wider, and it started to come in. Okay. And then I would take these over to the international magazines, and they would print them up visually. And then that got the message out in spade, look, we're now trying to be more inclusive and bringing things in. And the net result of that is that if you look over the last um, 35 years or so of churchwide international art competitions, what you will see, or 30 years at least, um, is the gradual development of what is undoubtedly the most significant collection of international folk art in this part of the United States. Okay, so this begs for me a very... A really serious question, which is, you know, I, and I don't know who is involved in the decision making here, but the Church Museum, Church History Museum, recently went through a multi-million dollar renovation. And and it seems on the face of it, and we're going to try and talk with people in coming, um, in coming uh, interviews about the decisions that were made, but it seems to me that the decisions were fairly practical. They took out a lot of the art that was on the on the main floor and even on the on the upper floor and replaced them with historical dioramas, which means that now people who come from Temple Square who are 
who aren't learning the history of the church in on Temple Square. They're getting the spiritual come to Christ message and missionary message there. The Church History Museum used to be Church Museum of History and Art, now kind of fills a very practical function on that main floor and on the upper floor of telling people the history of the church. But then you've got this this the, you've got the, vac- the the vacating and storing of of the artistic treasures that were there. Um, and you've got the, the, the no place to really hold this the, the, this art, this folk art, this major collection of folk art. What do you? What is the solution? What is the solution for um, for showing this collection? Because it feels like that's a stewardship. That's a stewardship of the church. The mm-hmm. church has collected it. It's an expression of faith of the community values of the people who make up the church, um, and. We don't have we don't have our own British Museum, you know. No. We don't have BYU's job is not to be a multicultural museum, in at least the way that they they've seen it now. It's mostly religious art, and occasionally they'll have shows for other things. What what do you do? I mean, I'm sure this is something you've thought a lot about. What it's and it goes to this idea of permanence. What is the permanent solution? What one of the challenges you can see that we're having is we can do temporary exhibitions. That would be a way to get it out. But then you have to ask yourself, well, what kind of temporary exhibitions do you do? And if you look at the kind of temporary exhibitions that they're currently happening, uh, the international component is conspicuously missing. When it does show up, it is of somebody who has gone to a a Western university that happens to be in a distant country. But the difference, their, their art departments are no different than what you're going to find at some place like University of Florida or the University of Alaska or the University of, of, uh, of uh, Illinois or wherever. Okay. It's defined it, it, by the by the the imagination of the Western, yeah, fine art construct. It it is almost devoid of any connection with the indigenous culture. Well, when you look at the membership of the church, that's not where they're from. Uh, we, we are not uh, out there converting the. Um, the highly affluent and the uh, the PhDs of the Philippines, for instance. This is a real bummer. We are <laughs> we we tend to baptize lower and lower middle class. Yeah. Uh, teach them correct principles. They become upwardly mobile, etc. Okay, but culturally, that's where they're at. In other words, I looked at the people out there and I thought. What we're doing is we're baptizing the, the Filipino equivalency of Moses Lake farmers. Hmm. And if we're going we're baptizing to, you and that's your, right. and you, if we're going to document the church internationally around the world, and that is our great epic story of our time, how are we going to leave out all the people? Yeah. I mean, it feels like a bummer. But in another way, it feels like 
an epic call to arms for a manifesto. That's right. Of 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 that that's possible. If if we look at something like, say, for instance, looking at artifact collecting. Say you want to collect uh, something very Mormon artifact, like from a place like, say, Ghana. And you look around and you say, well, let's, let's pick up an artifact. Well, let's see. Look, there's a sacrament tray that was used in Accra. And you bring it back. But you realize that this is the same sacrament tray that is made out in West Valley. Hmm. Uh, and, and what you have done is not documented Ghana. What you have do- documented is the distribution system of the church. Because yeah. what we have done is taking something from Salt Lake, sent it to Ghana, brought it back from Ghana to Salt Lake again. So, so what me- you're documenting is a transportation system. You're not dra- documenting a culture. But if you look at their art, oh, now you have Ghanaians. So let me, let me make, I think, this is, this is kind of an argument that I've been forming in my head. I haven't really talked to, I've been writing about this in my own spare time. And I can't think of anybody else who had rather tested on because of your experience is well beyond mine. Um, it's it's this, this notion that I think the church and its relationship with art, whether it's folk or, or fine, if we want to use those constructs, which I know are flawed, is limited by its imagination of what it can do with art. And, and it's limited, for instance, if you were to look at the art that was produced during the early part of the church, you know, the church didn't really patronize. You get to the art missionaries and they patronize them strictly for the purpose of the temples. And then you get some art officially put into temples. But then it isn't until really the World's Fair that they start weaponizing art for the proclamation of the gospel. <laughs> and they start hiring Harry Anderson. And you get, uh, um, oh, um, Tom Lovell. And you get John Scott and these others who are all brought in and the fine art is being made for other world's fairs and then it's distributed through church magazines and so the idea of art is the church will do it if it can justify it through the proclamation of the gospel and then it kind of has another life that's brought in during the 90s and now the 2000s of redeem the dead it's it's for temples we're doing it for temples it's it's almost as though if you were to say to the church, let's look at art as art. I can understand the church saying that's someone else's job because our job is to proclaim the dead, proclaim the, proclaim the gospel, redeem the dead, perfect the saints and, and help the poor. And so, so when they, <laughs> BYU even gets sucked into this, you go, you have this show of, of Carl Block that was done, which is a wonderful show on Carl Block. But next to every painting of Karl Bloch, there was a quote by a Mormon general authority on what that painting was about in terms of our salvation, not in terms of what Karl Bloch's audience was or who Karl Bloch was. So my question is, are we diametrically, are we able to collect the art as folk art, but unable to tell the story of that culture unless it relates to one of the missions? Can we have a museum where the church is expected to have professionals that tell the story, like professionals like you, or are those professionals doomed to frustration because they're never going to be able to tell 
hold an exhibition that's strictly about Polynesian art. They have to tell the story of the strong man or that it's a sacrament tray. Uh, that's a good question. It's maybe, a very maybe, maybe I could go back in. I I used to when I worked at the church, I would go to the American Association of Museums annual meeting fairly regularly, and I would have my little name tag on when you go to these conferences. That's what you do. So, for those who don't know, this is the Museum Association of America, where everyone from the Met to the Getty to the Boston Museum of Fine Arts is sending representatives to talk about best practices, and That's you're right. going to this. That's right. And and we picked up a lot of great ideas that we tried to incorporate into the church museum from these. Um, and they would see my little tag here, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Museum of Church History and Art, Church Historical Department. And, and they would sometimes say things like, you know, it must be kind of hard, you know, working for, for the church when you're in the art field, right? I say, well, actually, if you look at the history of world art, most of it's religious. I feel right at home, thanks. Hmm. And I think that it is possible to bring these two things together, talk about the art in its context, including its Mormon context. And I think... I think we really need to do that. I think the secularization of art has often done it um, a disservice. Interesting. If if you look at um, the uh, the art of, say, for instance, Rubens, and you look at at it strictly in terms of composition and brushstrokes and the incredible energy of the Baroque and leave out any mention of the Council of Trent, hmm. leave out any mention of the Counter-Reformation, yeah. you have not described Rubens. Right. If you look at the work of, say, Fra Angelico, who's one of my favorite yeah. Renaissance painters, and you leave out the humility of early Renaissance, late medieval, actually, monasticism yeah. and what it meant and the simplicity that the the monks were, at least the best of the best, were trying to do and that Fra Angelico expressed so eloquently and look at it simply in terms of color and composition. You've missed Fra Angelico. And it, I think... Yeah. I think putting something in a religious context um, it doesn't decrease its significance. I think it gives it back the themes that called it into being. So I want to go back to an idea you brought up near the beginning then, because you talked about what lasts in a culture are its sacred spaces, even more than the political spaces that are created. These are the things that tell us what a culture is. And it goes to something you've described as a sense of permanence, a sense of, of this cultural expression of, not just a cultural expression, what culture values. What, and it, 
this goes into a book that I've been reading called The Ideal Museum, where a man's been talking about, where the scholar, it's printed by Yale University, he talks about uh, how this idea of a museum is very young, something that's only existed really since Napoleon's era. That's Maybe right. a little earlier if you talk about the Uffizi. Previous that, the art was out there working. Right. It wasn't... It was working. It, it wasn't... It was, uh, it was the difference between having bees and a beehive pollinating your garden and your fields and your orchards compared to an insect collection where you have a pin <laughs> through a dead bee and it's in a box. Yeah. And the museums took the bee and put it in the box. So if we talk about this idea of an ideal museum in your mind, maybe it isn't a museum. Andre Malraux you... wrote a book about that called uh, something about museum without walls or something. That's right. And uh, I remember that book. And he's talking about context. And, you know, one of the things that happens when you look at medieval art, much of it has a hard time being taken out and put in a museum. Yeah. It's kind of hard to take the rose window out of Chartres Cathedral and stick it on the wall of an art gallery. So are you talking about a, a non-centralized model? Are you talking about, uh, what, are, what, what, what do you see, or, or do you not necessarily I, know exactly what the expression of it is? Well, I, think, I think there's a lot of ways to use it. I think uh, temples can do some of the kinds of things visually that medieval cathedrals did. And um, Do you think they are doing that? They're better now than they were 20 years ago. Why? What's better? You're on the Temple Art Evaluation Committee, or have been, for many years. So you've been in that room as things are made. What have you seen as being some of the progress made there? Okay, let me give you an example. Okay. When I first looked, started looking at the art in temples, and I'm talking here not about the historical temples. Right. I'm talking about the modern ones. You're talking about the, 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 the uh, President Hinckley yeah. on boom. This is, this is kind of like... Over the last 20 years, okay, 25 years, I look at these temples and virtually all of the quote unquote art in them were prints. And if they did have an original, it was a landscape painting. And then I would say, well, what is that landscape painting? Because at least it was an original work of art. Well, it was usually something like the Wasatch Mountains in the fall. Right. And it's lovely. I'm not against the Wasatch Mountains in the fall. It's God's gift to the world. You know? Right, right. Uh, but it was put in some temple like Baton Rouge, Louisiana. <laughs> okay. So I said, okay, let's begin yeah. by, if we're going to do landscape paintings, let's at least localize the landscape paintings to the temple. Right. Now, landscape paintings matter for Latter-day Saints. We do murals that were basically landscape paintings. To my knowledge, we're about the only Christian religion for whom landscape paintings can be religious art. Right, I, right. I think that's kind of a neat thing. It's pretty wonderful. And it goes back a lot to John Hafen and his, that's right. his evangelizing of God's creation and it being its own narrative. And It, it, it yeah. goes back to murals in the St. George Temple. Yeah. And the uh, Manti Temple and the... Logan Temple before John Hafen even went to back uh, right back east and especially back to to Paris. Okay, yeah, yeah. So we ha we have this landscape tradition. I said, why don't we spring from our historical tradition, 
where we use murals in temples. And now I know it's not a mural. It's just a little painting hanging on the wall. But at least we were using our landscape murals to localize. Why don't we try that? So what I was doing was making an art historical argument to change the nature of landscape paintings in temples. Right. Call ourselves back to our own tradition and then create art that might be a little bit more relevant. Right. So that was the beginning. Easy argument to, 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 to agree to. Yeah. It, it seems, seems totally obvious, except it wasn't happening. Hmm. That, was, that was a major transformation. Yeah. And uh, and we started doing that and we started getting these going. And then um, I was working with the interior designers of the temple. That's how I first started got uh, first started working with them. I got a call about and this is after you'd left you'd you'd retired from no 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 i was still working in the museum the okay i got a call from the designer interior designer who was doing the the temple in vernal and he said you know it's this old tabernacle going back to about 1900 and um we want to furnish it in a way that would be compatible what have you got have you got some ideas that we can spring from? So I showed him some furniture that had come out of the Salt Lake Temple that would be possible to spring from in terms of design and use it in the, um, the temple in Vernal. And that, that furniture had gone in, what, in the early 18, mid-1890s. So it was fairly compatible. Yeah. And it worked. And then... Um, Next temple I uh, was called on was uh, the temple in Palmyra. And they said, you know, it, it might, uh, have you got some ideas for us? And I said, well, first of all, in terms of furnishings, uh, you could kind of do what they did in Palmyra at the time, but it's going to be pretty primitive. Ladder back chairs and stuff. Talking about like shaker type yeah. furniture. Or maybe you'd feel more compatible with doing 1830, but sort of like Boston. And of course, that resonated. Okay. So we sort of sprang from that for furnishings. And then I said, now, this, the first vision that gets us started happened just down the hill. So we really need an image of the first vision in the temple. Now, if you read Joseph Smith's description of it, the word that keeps coming to the fore is bright and light. Right. So how can we communicate that? I said, what about stained glass? Hmm. It's about light, right? What if we got a stained glass window with the first vision? So here's, here's one of the questions I have as you're making these decisions and having these conversations is it seems like when I talk with architects who are involved now and who were involved then, that when President Hinckley is getting up every general conference and announcing a half dozen temples, things are being done quickly. Hundreds, thousands of decisions are being made very quickly. And art and furnishings are a very small 
a, a number of those decisions that are included in where we're going to source concrete from for the foundation. Even though they're aesthetically the thing that people, they're one of the principal things that people experience. Was this something that that you felt like people that that you were one of the few people who had your eye on and you had to kind of sneak things in to discussions? Um, was it was was there a ready audience for these kinds of suggestions? Was it the kind of what 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 was the atmosphere? How many people were involved in these kinds of discussions? Was it you and the decorator? It was mostly me and the decorator. And I got to know decorators and I would go over and just casually drop in and get to know these people and and find and, out which temple they're working on. And everybody's figuring it out as they go along, I assume. Well, they're they're very open to ideas. Yeah. These are things that hadn't really showed up on the radar screen. Yeah, this is before a pol- like a book had been made of this is the style format for every for this, this, no, this, no, and no. this. That hadn't that hadn't uh, been going on. And and particularly Particularly, the interior designers were much more open than architects. Yeah. Much, much more open. And so you could wiggle things in in small ways. Yeah. And I remember in one of my political science classes as an undergraduate, the dean uh, or the chairman of the department said, gave a definition of politics one time. He said, political science is the science of the possible. So I would look at this from yeah, that standpoint. Churchill originally said that, I think, too. Yeah, I mean, he's... Yeah, yeah he's quoting it's, something else, it's, yeah. It's a, it has a long tradition. Yeah. Um, and so what I would do is I would say, okay, uh, what's possible? Okay, let's start with, let's, let's get a, a, a painting, a landscape that at least represents the area. Right. Because that's possible. They're going to do a landscape anyway. Why not do it from the area? Right. Um, and um, and they're going to do furnishings anyway. You know, if you can, I'd had very positive feedback uh, from the designers on uh, the Vernal Temple and then the Palmyra Temple. And, and it uh, seems like that's something that's continued even to the point that they've They've hired an expert in historical furnishings now whose job is solely as they go back to some of these temples yeah. and as they do them to make sure that that ethic of what is local and what is true to the time and place. And we were also are, are reacting there. against some may a major mistake we'd made in in earlier times when they gutted the Logan Temple. Right, right. And they almost gutted the Manti Temple, and That's then right. that was averted. That's right. And and so there were the, you were there as part of this and pendulum swing. Enough, <clears throat> a key part on saving the Manti Temple <clears throat> was the um, uh, the work of Florence Jacobson, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, she knew a lot of general authorities. She was the granddaughter of two presidents of the church. She... Um, She'd gone to school with a lot of these people. And, um, and when she was she a wanted, decorator for the church. Well, she did. Who had been involved yeah. in a lot of, of efforts. Mm-hmm. She's a legend. She really is. Uh, among a lot An of people, amazing, Florence Jacobson. Amazing person. And uh, when she wanted to get their ear, she would just invite him for dinner. And she would talk <laughs> about having Boyd over for dinner or Gordon or somebody. And I didn't know who they were talking about. It. And then I learned, oh, it was Gordon B. Hinckley, and it was Boyd K. Packer, you know. But these were her friends, and she would she would basically lay out her case. 
And would you make a case to her knowing that it would be made to them? A, a little bit, but but in terms of, of like Manti, I mean, Florence was perfectly up and running. She was she was doing great. And so the point I want to make, something like saving the Manti Temple, that did not come from church architects. Right. It came from church leaders. And it came from rank and file members of the church. Now, there's an interesting message in all of that. And that is... When we look at our quote-unquote art experts who have been trained for the ministry, right? Right. They've gone to architecture school. Not necessarily the champions of our historical tradition. In fact, sometimes the enemy of it. And the uh, what it did is it, it taught me that if we want to build a great tradition and we want to preserve the tradition we have, um, we don't write off church leaders. Actually, they're going to be more concerned about saving than maybe those that you might at first think would be the preservers of the tradition. It's a different job. It, it was the church architectural de department that gutted Logan. It was the church general authorities that saved Manti. In well, spite of the architecture department wanting to gut Manti as well. You know, it seems to me, and I know we're winding down here time-wise, and maybe we have to continue this another discussion because there, you've raised so many issues and questions that are going to keep me thinking, and I know that we're going to have reactions from our listeners too. You've, I'm sure you've got a lot of people thinking about what do we do next and what can we do. But one of the one of the 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 thoughts that I have as you're talking is the church. The church has these practical needs of of building buildings that are used for ritual of doing them well, doing them quickly, making them practical structures on one hand, right? And those practical decisions can have consequences of gutting an historic chapel, temple, or even a chapel. And now we've got this place where we have, we have a, a, a six temple architects with an architect over them. And they've got mixed interests. Some of them are more modernist and some of them are more traditional. And we've got some that are dedicated to the, to the historic temples and the restoration of those who are working with historical experts. We have a church history museum and we have right now a global acquisitions um, curator. But I don't know if we have, at least within the museum, someone who's focused on historical collections. I don't know if we have somebody who is a Polynesian expert. I don't know if we have somebody who's a Latin American expert or an African expert. I, it seems like the, the focus of the, 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 uh, the latest international show that just took place 
was no longer about the internationalism of of the and and folk art, but was more of a modernist um, plus traditional show that was going on, which I can see the the interest in. And there were a lot of people who felt left out who wanted more of their modernist works to be shown. It's a lot to put on the burden of the church to do all of it, too. It's a lot to say um, a church, a, a, a temple in Finland has to be functional and look Finnish. And, 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 and a museum and an international show has to both be fine art and express all of the indigenous cultures that the church is bringing in. Um, I know I've got feelings and you've got feelings about what the focus should be and could be for those things. But it, it also begs the, it begs the question of how do we do it all? How do we do it all? Cause there's a lot of reason for optimism. There's also a lot of reason to say we're falling short in these things, but there is a lot of opportunity and if you had advice to people right now as to how to get involved, maybe it's too much to ask that question. I don't know. You're kind of blinking. You're deep in thought. I've captured you. Is my question too broad? Is it not the right question to be asking? I think <clears throat> we have principles in the gospel from Holy Writ, from revelatory discourse by apostles and prophets in our time that are full of really great, useful uh, signposts. Hmm. We might start by looking at those themes. Let me give you an example. The... 124th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, among other things in that section, the Lord tells Joseph Smith how to go about building temples. In verse 26, he says something very interesting. He says, when you're building a temple, bring your antiquities and those with knowledge of antiquity. Hmm. Hmm. Now, when we have done that, we've ended up with temples like Salt Lake and Manti. When we haven't done that, we've ended up with temples like the old Ogden Provo temples. Hmm. Uh, and then there is an interesting verse in the Old Testament where the prophet Malachi in one verse says, by the way, this is what those 1100 or so previous pages Boil down to a single verse why it's important and matters to us. Hmm. We usually use it in one context, but think of it for a minute in terms of art and architecture and temples. And he says, And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. How would you turn the hearts of architects and artists of children to fathers might you look to the past and say are there some great ideas there that we can use in the present hmm. since what we're doing in temples is embracing our ancestors and doing work for them might me look at them as something more than a name 
Might these be people representing a culture? Couldn't that culture become part of how we actually make our designs and how we furnish? And if you look at the Salt Lake Temple, you see that. Battlements, for instance, around the top of the, of the temple. There's only one major religious uh, architectural tradition that consistently uses battlements on ecclesiastical architecture, and that's English Norman Romanesque. And the early church leaders were sent there by Joseph Smith to be missionaries, and they went to those places, and they were influenced by them. When Brigham Young goes down to Worcester and meets Wilfred Woodruff, who's serving down there, and Brigham takes him immediately up to the cathedral. It's this gorgeous Gothic cathedral where Wicked King John is buried. And uh, Wilfred Woodruff writes about it in his journal. And he says, today we visited the noted splendor of the Worcester Cathedral, the most beautiful thing mine eyes have ever beheld. Hmm. It is so superior to the architecture of the present generation. Hmm. Why does that matter? Because Wilfred Woodruff was the one who completed the Salt Lake Temple. And Brigham Young, who took him up to the the cathedral, was the one who started it. So if you want to see the application of D&C 124, verse 26, bring those with knowledge of antiquity. There it is. That's how it works itself out. And it's the hearts of the children looking to the fathers. That's it. And then you ask the next question, and that brings us to the present. You turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. How would you do that? Might you want to make architecture so beautiful and so significant that in 200 years, it's still nourishing our hearts and souls. Do the same thing with the art. And the problem is architects in our time are designed for the U.S. tax code, which says you can amortize the cost of an apartment building in, what is it, uh, 29 years or something like that. You can amortize the cost of a, of an office building in 39 years to zero. And so they build disposable buildings. Hmm. But temples can't be disposable that easily, okay? They're supposed to, they're supposed to continue. And yet our architects have gone through a training program that says build disposable. You know and there's a, a whole different way of looking at architecture, but it, but it, is, it is part and parcel of the history of world architecture. It's part and parcel of what art historians and architectural historians are supposed to be about. It's part and parcel about Doctrine and Covenants, section 124, verse 26, where the Lord says, bring those with knowledge of antiquity when you're building a temple. You know, it strikes me as we're talking that... um, And throwaway buildings don't cut it. that, That your interest in architecture and this... It seems it seems like this that that architecture in the end for you is integral integral to our to 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 all the other disciplines you've embraced. Welcome to the Middle Ages. That's that was the the matrix where you put all the art and you put the beautiful architecture and it all comes together. This is the in some ways the alternative to the idea of art hermetically sealed on the 
a blank wall in a museum. This is functional art. Okay, so I'm going to ask a hypothetical then. And it's integrated art integrated into the architecture. So so this is this is my hypothetical. Right now where we are in our building of temples is one thing. Let's fast forward to some unknown particular date. Are there museums in Zion? Where is the art in Zion? And is the temple the the sum of these arts of this experience you're talking about? Is is, is it not hermetically sealed in places in Zion? I mean, take me to Zion and where you see architecture and the visual arts. And I'm not necessarily talking about Joseph Smith's plan of the temples being broken up and there being, what was it, I think 24 different temples and each one had a different function. Maybe that's, that, that plays a part of it. That was basically what today is the church campus. Right, right. They called them temples. They didn't call them office buildings. But that's what that's what they called them. But let's let's say your vision of Zion being being and and the role of 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 this 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 visionary role of the art and architecture of 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 God's people and the people of the earth. Where do you see it? What is my experience? What is your experience with it in Zion? Where do I see it? I think if you're going to have a testimony meeting of Latter-day Saints from all over the world, the most efficacious way to do that is in an art show. Okay. Because, you know, my Tongan really isn't very eloquent. <laughs> and I don't speak much Tagalog. Yeah. And, and Quechua is... Quechua is off weak. the... I can do some French. Okay. okay? Um. But with art, you can transcend a lot of, of linguistic barriers. I did an interesting exhibit at the Church Museum some years ago on Lehi's vision of the Tree of Life. I remember this. And I had, we had art in that from all over the earth. Yeah. I thought it was very interesting to see how people responded to it. We would have people walk through that exhibit who you might look at them and say, well, this is a very unsophisticated person. Uh, But they brought the gospel in their hearts and souls and minds. They looked at it and they were spiritually and emotionally and aesthetically moved by something that aesthetically was so far away from anything they'd ever experienced before. But because of the content of the subject matter, it built a bridge. And because they knew that this was this was their fellow Latter-day Saint on the other side of the of the earth, they they embraced it. So this notion of um it, being of one heart and one mind in Zion, arts one of art's jobs is using this common language of the gospel. But the uncommon language of the way that these cultures express themselves to bind us together. And you do see an art show. You do see an, ex- an opportunity oh, yeah. for, for exhibits. Know, it, it's, it's like walking around here in downtown Salt Lake City and you, you look at all of the different restaurants you get to go to from all over the earth in terms of cuisine. Which is something that didn't exist 50 or 60 it years didn't. ago at all. It didn't. And, and so you get a double, a double benefit from this. 
you get uh, ideas and people connecting with each other, and you get this huge expansion of of aesthetic knowledge, hmm. and you become much more keenly aware about aesthetic issues. Hmm. But you are led there by maybe Lehi's vision of the tree of life or the first vision. Hmm. I mean, these aren't hermetically sealed. These are these are like hydrogen and oxygen coming together and you get water out of it. Wow. You have to have it together. When it's together, it's a living, life-giving thing. Hmm. When it is separate, it becomes truncated and pigeonholed and isolated. Hmm. And and I like the idea of it being integral. Hmm. I I'm into baptism by immersion, not sprinkling. <laughs> okay? Yeah. And and the arts, when they are wedded like that, are this is baptism by immersion. Yeah. This is this is probably the only way you're going to hear some humble uh, member of the church from Nigeria bear their testimony, huh. and and yet do it so eloquently. L- let me give you a parallel in Western music. Okay, and let's let's end it on this. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We can say something like, Christ said he was going to come. He came. He taught, he, uh, he did the atonement, he died for our sins, he's going to come again. Or you could do Handel's Messiah. Yeah. And as Elder Packer used to f- frequently say, our art needs to be worthy of its message. And uh, art can provide an eloquence there, there is a key role that artists can play. Hmm. But it, it happens when they're in the thick of thick things hmm. that technique and style can give you... This is, this is using kind of economic arguments. It can give you a reason to look at something, to focus to buy something, in essence, psychologically, okay? Uh, And in the process, you pick up a great message. Hmm. We may listen to Handel's Messiah because it's just drop-dead gorgeous. But in the process, we discover Christ, Hmm. you know? Hmm. And and that's, that's one of the things that I think is so distinctive about the possibility of Mormon art. Yeah. That we haven't lost the, the the connection between those two things, and I can look at the Fra Angelico and I love it, because back in those days it was connected. Yeah. But if you go to a typical art department in our time, it's that that would never show up on the radar screen, and the result is visual trivia. Yeah. And and it loses mm. its soul and its guts. And that's why if we look to the past, we look at something like Handel's Messiah or the Sistine Ceiling or Chartres Cathedral, you know, there's so many great things they can teach us. Or or maybe we're looking at Hopi pottery and Navajo rugs, yeah. you know? Wow. And as Latter-day Saints, we are in the 
in the midst of trying to create a great artistic tradition in the late 20th and the 21st century. How often does that happen in the world today? That's no small task. And in the process, you, you, we, we have the potential of creating something of great lasting significance and moving away from obscure trendiness that uh, is, is devoid of significant ideas of permanence. And we, the, the gospel actually can provide a core of, uh, of, of substance and significance and purpose. It's not separated. It's hydrogen and oxygen and come together and make water. I love it. It's a message of hope, too. That's a hopeful message. Well, Richard Oman, thank you. That's thank good you to be so here. much for being here. Thank you for your wisdom and, uh, and, and also just, um, I know we only touched on the smallest amount of, of your experience. I, I hope you feel comfortable coming back and we can have you again. Oh, I'd love to. It was, it's, it's been a real privilege. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank again Richard Oman for joining us for this episode of Mormon Visual Culture presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. To listen to archives and other interviews with scholars and artists, go to zionartsociety.org under the podcast tab or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>